this is the end. <laughs> Just over a year, actually, we started this book beginning of October um, last year. John 21, starting in verse 9. We're going to start back just a little bit. Verse 9. And when they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was... Now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining a table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Our God and Father, we do ask that you would bless your word. We know that you have blessed your living word, the Lord Jesus. We do ask now that you would bless your written word and your spoken word. Bless your people that your spirit would work within us, that we might hear from heaven and believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, married men, I got to start with you guys. Start with a, a trip for married guys. Got to go back a little bit to when you were first married. You remember that. Some of you, that's a couple weeks ago. Some of you, that's a long, long time ago, right? And remember the first time that you really hurt your wife's feelings. And I mean, not the like, oh, I said a callous word and I upset her. But when you were a young married man... This is most true for those that grew up with brothers and not sisters. And did something unusually problematic and evil. And seriously hurt your wife's feelings. I imagine many of you can remember. I I remember very clearly that feeling of, oh no, I've broken her. And I don't know what I did. It's terrible, isn't it? You remember that feeling? Wives, you know your husband knows that feeling. Those blank eyes, the, oh, I'm in so much trouble and I'm not sure why yet. And as a young married, you go, I I love her. I'm overcome with love for her. I've got to fix this. And, of course, as a married man, you lead with the dumbest question but it's the one you got to know the answer to, and you already know what it is. What did I do? And it sounds so dumb when you say it like this, but it's so serious. That usually pours gasoline on the fire, and the tears come more hard and heavy, and it becomes even more traumatic. But to arrive at a conclusion... At some point, conversation must be had where the wife articulates, this is what you did, and this is why it hurts. Now, again, most young married men are like anything to make her stop crying. I'm not accustomed yet to women crying in my presence. It's not something I've had happen most of my life. I don't know what to do with it. I'm ready for it to stop, anything to make it stop. And you know, immediately, that's the wrong answer because immediately you're going to do that again in another like four days because boys are fairly dumb in that regard. 
No, in fact, actually, the correct answer is to figure out what did I actually do? Let's, let's cut through the emotion. Let's cut through the trauma. Let's figure out how did I hurt you? And now that I figured out how I hurt you, now I can repent correctly. Now I can own what I did. Now I can realize, oh, I, I had no understanding. My words hurt you that way because I didn't mean them that way at all. I'm so, so sorry I said that and I apologize. And, and you can come to reconciliation. Just pasting over it doesn't fix it. Particularly that first good fight, right? Mm, that first good one. The one where the wife calls home to mom and is like, I might have made a mistake. It happens. You see, that conversation is so incredibly important to understand all of the emotion and all of the trauma and all of the hurt and all of the heartache. Because the passage we get to today is like that on steroids. Peter is hanging out with the disciples. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit as part of their office. They've gone back to work. They've gone back fishing. And Jesus appears on the shore. And you remember this beautiful response by Peter. He sees Jesus hundreds of yards away on the shore, throws on his clothes, and jumps in the ocean, jumps in the sea, and swims to Jesus. And we're like, oh, that's charming. It's so Peter. I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. We kind of sometimes forget this is the guy who just you know, recanted from his faith just a few short nights ago. This is the guy that was, when pressured by the you know, uber-threatening uh, servant girl, he caved. Ooh, she's so scary. I can't handle the, the servant girl. And he's like, I don't know Jesus. Again, he, he's, he's recognizing a little bit of his sin. He knows he hurt Jesus. He knows he violated God's command. He knows he was a traitor, but he doesn't fully appreciate the depth of that yet. And having swum through the sea and come and had breakfast with the Lord Jesus, now in front of the disciples, Jesus begins the process of cleaning. He begins the process of restoration, and it's not in private, it's in public. Jesus begins with a question that would have been, I think biting would be an understatement. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Pointing at the men around him. And it would have been unbearably painful for Simon to have to actually interact with that question. Peter doesn't want to have to think about that. Because he could easily say, well, you know what? I was the guy who jumped in the ocean. Like, I was the guy who jumped in the sea. I just showed I do love him a lot. But in the back of his mind, to have that niggling little doubt. Yeah, but you know what? They didn't betray Jesus. And I did. And I did.
And I love how Jesus makes it sting even more by asking the comparative question. It's not, do you love me? That's not what he starts with. It's, do you love me more than your peers? So Peter takes uh, the position of deference. His, his first answer is not astonishing. It's not shocking. It would be to be expected were Jesus to sit me down and ask me, do you, do you love me more than your people do? Uh, you know I love you. Uh, what kind of question is that? I love you. Of course I love you. More than everybody else? That's a weird question. I'm not sure I can answer that. Uh, you know I love you. And that's what Peter does. Yeah, Lord. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, um, yes, you know I love you. Of course. Okay. I'm, I'm a little confused by what you're asking. Um, yeah, of course. I, I, I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs, which we're going to talk about in a moment. That's going to be second theme here. Verse 16, you get the impression Jesus pauses for just a moment, just long enough for it to kind of sink in. And doubles down on the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, here he's dropped the comparative element. It's no longer, do you love me more than them? It's, do you love me at all? And this would have been that problematic time for Peter. Because he no longer has a cop-out. He no longer has the social grace answer. The Well, you know I love, I mean, obviously I love you. I can't answer a comparative question. That's not fair to say that I, Peter, love you more than John. That's silly. I can't answer that. This question is not one of those that he can get away from like that. Do you, Peter, love Jesus? Well, I mean, threw myself into the sea. I'm excited to see him. Followed him for years. Oh yeah, betrayed him at the most vital, critical moment in human history. Oh yeah, at that turning point in all of mankind's history, I was on the wrong side. Oh yeah, that. About that. And so Peter again takes, I would say, suggest a bit of a cop-out answer. Yeah, Lord, obviously, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, tend my sheep. And then verse 17, at this point, it's uncomfortable. You know, see, we function with superlatives and comparatives by using ER and EST. It's great. It's greater. It's greatest. In this culture, it was not always greater, greatest. There was often times where you would repeat it over and over to show emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy, holier, holiest. What Jesus does here in this third question is now to take it from the realm of, uh, okay, socially acceptable through the realm of this is really uncomfortable to Jesus lays a man's soul open in front of everyone 
This is the equivalent of having that first public or that first fight with the spouse in public, in front of her parents, in front of everyone else, in front of her siblings, and having to figure out what on earth am I going to do? Verse 17 Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, push the issue, mash that wound. Do you love me? Here he's actually mimicking Peter's exact words. He copies the grammar that Peter's using as opposed to his original question. It stings the most sharply. And finally you see Peter break. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? You see, what Jesus has forced Peter to do is to stare directly in the face of his betrayal. This is not the parting shot. This is not the, well, anything to make her stop crying that young husbands try. This is not that, well, I just you know, make her happy for a moment. This is Jesus forcing the issue. Peter, do you realize what you've done? When it came time to watch all of human history turn, you voted on the wrong side. You betrayed the Lord of life. That is a big deal. And finally, Peter breaks. And this is the good response. I would say the other's a little bit pacifying, a little bit like, you know, I mean, obviously, they're kind of mealy-mouthed. This is the one where he gets it right. Lord, and here he's not just referencing him as a person of authority. He's acknowledging his divinity. Lord, you know everything. You know my person. You know my heart. You know my successes. You know my failures. You know all of who I am. You see, what he's doing here in this very quick answer is he's no longer running from his betrayal. He's no longer running from his sin. He's no longer running from his shame. He's acknowledging the full weight of it. Lord, you know everything. You know I'm a mess. You know I'm a traitor. And you know that I love you. What a, what a wonderful statement that he's making. Look, you, you're the Lord of life. Yes, you know all of my failures. But you do know I do love you. You can see it. You don't have to look solely at my actions. You know it in my heart. You know it in my soul because you are the Lord of life. And finally, we get the great answer from Peter. And what does Jesus do? feed my sheep same theme same topic same response no full huge answer he's restoring peter i love this passage here because of how it displays the tenderness of the lord jesus here he takes peter whom i'm i'm lovingly going to term probably the greatest traitor in human history 
I mean, Benedict Arnold's got nothing on this guy. I mean, really and truly, when the Lord of life was in trouble, he, he was like, yeah, I'm out. See ya. I'll catch you later. Hope they don't kill him. I cannot imagine this staggering sense of shame that would have accompanied that. Well, yeah, you're going to throw yourself in the sea to go see Jesus. You're going to do anything to make that shame go away. Yeah, you're going to be the one who's sprinting to the tomb, going and running in. You're hoping he's not dead. Of course you are. You were the betrayer that helped get him killed. Of course you would be excited to see him alive. Of course you'd be more excited than anybody else. You see, what Jesus does in these three questions is he forces Peter to come to terms with all of the depth of his sin, all of the depth of his shame, all of the depth of that brokenness, that festering nastiness, and then washes it away. Gives him three commands that are connected explicitly to his office, which we'll talk about in a moment. I would suggest, though, that there are many in the room today that this needs to be your thought, your heart, and your mind. I love how Ezekiel acknowledges there are some sheep in the flock that are fat, there are some that are weak, there are some that are weary, there are some that are injured. For those that are weak and injured, I would suggest this is your paragraph. I know some of you struggle so much with with shame, debilitating shame. Those things that I did when I was younger, those things that I did last week, those things that I did when I was a Christian, I can't believe I did them. He's the Lord of life. How could I do that? And it's so shocking here. Look, the Lord forgives betrayal on the cross. Do you think he can't forgive you? Do you think your sins are worse than Peter's? Let me be honest when you answer that one first. Do you think you're worse than Peter? I mean, when the Lord of life is about to be betrayed, when he's about to be murdered, when he's about to be persecuted, that you're, I mean, are you worse than that? Are your sins unique that the Lord Jesus cannot cleanse them? You see, that's what the cross is for. That the Lord Jesus on the cross takes all of the sins of his people upon him. He takes their guilt. He takes their shame. So that on the cross, he would endure the guilt of sin. So that on the cross, he would endure the shame that would accompany it. So that we might be forgiven. So that we might be cleansed from guilt and power of sin. So that we might be cleansed of condemnation of sin. So that we might be cleansed and be found free. The scriptures are so clear. They talk so frequently about God's people being free in their hearts. Why are they free? Because we've been forgiven and cleansed. We don't live within that burden of shame, that debilitating psychological weight anymore, because we are washed in Christ.
Now, I find it interesting that as Jesus has this wonderfully intimate moment with Simon Peter in front of all of his peers, Jesus couples two things together. First, he couples, what do we do with sin? You confess it, you have it forgiven by Christ, and you move on. With action. I love how those two things go hand in hand for Peter. Confession and action. Notice what Jesus does with each of these restatements, reinstatements of Peter. He he asks him a question, Peter responds, and then Jesus gives him a task connected to his office. All right, if you love me, if you're my person, great, go work for me now. Yes, be cleansed of guilt and shame. Go work for me now. Look, I, I know you love me. I love you too. Now go work for me now. Go fulfill your function as an officer in God's church. And I love how tender these are. Feed my lambs. My little baby lambs, the little hoppy, jumpy, adorable little creatures. I mean, is there a more adorable creature in all of creation than a baby lamb? Feed them. Uh, In social media, I follow a number of shepherds from northern England. I love the pictures of like their little kiddos holding the bottles with the baby lambs, you know, nursing and and feeding. It's adorable. It's so beautiful. It's wonderful. And here Jesus says to Peter, the one who has betrayed him, go take care of my weak ones, the babies, the weaklings, the ones that you would not want an untrustworthy person around. Go take care of them. I mean, you think about it, again, when when your kids were little, did you let any babysitter take care of your kids? (laughs) No, of course not. You found trustworthy people, and you're like, "Ah, I trust trust her. I trust him. I'll I'll leave my kids with them. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's like, I'm saying, Simon Peter, you're trustworthy. I'm leaving my baby lambs with you. Go take care of them. In fact, actually, don't just take care of my baby lambs. Go take care of my sheep. Tend them, watch over them, guard them, and keep them. In fact, actually, one step further, feed the flock itself. They are dear to me. I think it's interesting that the books end with Jesus telling his people, I love you, your sins are forgiven, now go make disciples. That's how Matthew ends. Great Commission, it's about making disciples. It's the only verb in the sentence. Make disciples. Baptizing, teaching. Making disciples is the emphasis. Here, what is the emphasis? Making disciples. It's how the story ends. Jesus forgives. He uh, reinstates. He equips. And he tells us to go labor. Go work. Go serve him. Go take care of his people. Now, for a pastor, this has particular punch. This is my life. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be feeding the lambs, tending the sheep, feeding the flock. If I'm not doing that, you need to replace me. Get rid of me. I'm not doing my job. When it comes time to elect elders again next month, (laughs) pick the ones who are going to do this. And if they're not, replace them. They're not doing their job. For our Sunday school teachers, our nursery workers, our parents, our grandparents, our adoptive parents, 
This is their task. Why? Because we are called to be gathering and perfecting, gathering and building up the people of God. It is our mission. Why is it that our sins are forgiven? Why is it that we're cleansed of shame so that we're able to go and serve, so we're able to go tell people about Jesus, so that we're able, we're we're emotionally and personally ready to be able to help build up the church? How's it possible you can even stand in a pulpit and preach? Do you know the psychological turmoil that is required to stand up here and proclaim the words of life? It would be impossible if you didn't have this cleansing pronouncement by Christ first, then the charge to go serve. Now, the Holy Spirit obviously understands people. Because for most folks, there's a little bit of a... I, don't know, I would say a standard thought process on how this works. My sins, I, I kind of come to an understanding of who I am in the Lord. I come to an understanding of, of who I am, what I've done, how I am forgiven. I kind of come to terms with God and self. And then I go and I start actively serving in the tasks that I'm called to do, the things that I'm good at. For me, I preach and teach. It's the skills he gave me. He could have given me other ones. Some of you, it's prayer. Some of you, it's giving. Some of you, it's service. Some have the gift of helps. I don't have that. I can't help. I try. But it's interesting how God knows that the very next thing that is most likely inclined to pop up into our brain is to begin to compare ourselves with others. Which interestingly goes back to the original problem. Am I cleansed of sin? Am I cleansed of its guilt? Am I cleansed of its shame? Or do I still have value wrapped up in those things? Verse 18, Jesus fully reinstating Peter says, Look, when you were young, you did whatever you want. (laughs) And we know that's true. You were impetuous, Peter. Everyone knows that. And when he said that, I I imagine the other disciples kind of smirked. They probably didn't laugh because it was far too serious, but they probably got a little chuckle inside. Yeah, he did whatever he wanted. He just threw himself in the sea. The man just went swimming with his clothes on. Of course he did. He's silly. You used to dress yourself. You walked wherever you want, but no, something different. When you were old, you will stretch out your hands. The early church used that term, stretch out your hands, as a technical term for crucifixion. What Jesus means here is that you're going to be martyred. They're going to murder you, Peter. Another's going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. They're going to kill you, Peter. You're going to die for me. Verse 19, John tells us, kind of a little clue in. uh, This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. By the way, Peter's already dead when this is written. He's already gone. John's writing about his friend in the past tense. He knows he's dead, and he knows how he died. Church tradition has it that he was crucified upside down and had his head cut off. It's terrible. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I love this. And after saying this, oh, by the way, you're going to be martyred. What does Jesus say? Follow me. 
And so Jesus stands up to walk off to the side where he's going to, you know, supernaturally teleport back to glory or wherever he's going next. And Peter walks with him. And as he's talking with Jesus, he looks back and he sees John who's younger, and he identifies him, the one that Jesus loved, the one who had uh, reclined at table next to him, had his head on uh, Jesus' chest, the one who asked the question, who's going to betray you? And Peter looks at John, he looks at Jesus, and he looks at John, and he looks at Jesus, and he's like, what about that guy? And it's such a good question, isn't it? This is the human soul so beautifully exposed. You've just had your most embarrassing moment, your most shameful activity forgiven and cleansed. You've been given a particular and special task. Oh, yeah, by the way, then it's mentioned that you're going to be martyred. And he's like, well, what about him? What's going to happen to that guy? Is he going to get the same thing too? Twenty-two. Jesus says, and I'm going to paraphrase this, Peter, stay in your lane. It's none of your business. If it's my will, notice it's mine. I love that. It's not the Father here. He's explicitly acknowledging the Lord Jesus is in control of it all. If it's my will that he remain until I come, is that any of your business? Is that any of your business? No. You see, actually, what we have here is a completion of the cycle. How did Jesus begin his questions to Peter? Do you love me more than these? And now what's Peter doing? He's returned back to that comparative theology. Am I different? Am I better? Are they better? Am I greater? Am I weaker? How are we in relationship to each other? And Jesus lovingly says, mind your own business. Enjoy your forgiveness. Love the Lord God and go obey. In fact, actually, it's such a problem in the early church that it's misreported what Jesus says. Instead of them saying, Jesus says, what is, it is none of your business, they misreport it to say, John's going to live forever. And it does happen to be that John lives a really long time. So much so that there is a conversation, is he actually going to live forever? And so John, being stand-up dude here at the end of the book, is like, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die just like everybody else. Leave me alone. But I might suggest, very briefly as a word of application, that in our own personal growth, so much of our understanding of the world is improperly Framed in themes one or themes three. Theme one or theme three. I mean, this church, do we have a problem with go serve the Lord? I don't think we do. You guys work hard. You give well. Encourage one another. You're kind to one another. And you're not going to hear me anytime soon preach a sermon blasting you for being unwelcoming, unfriendly, or unkind. I would suggest, though, that there is probably a much greater uh, reality that we do struggle first to believe that we actually have been cleansed from our sin. 
As a pastor who knows his people, I would suggest there's a, a substantial portion of us that carry a tremendous burden of shame. Needlessly. Needlessly. Because we have been forgiven. We have been cleansed. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. In fact, actually, that's the devil's, one of his greatest tricks. To get you to dwell on the condemnation that you do think you deserve and to keep it harbored inside your soul. And then secondly, I think we increase this in this third mentality of, again, returning to that comparative relationship, that comparative understanding of calling, that comparative reality to think, well, I, I'm, I'm doing this. Well, what about, what about Sam? Michael, mind your business, man. That's Sam's call. That's not yours. Put your nose down. Think about the glory of God. Delight in his forgiveness and go work. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about other people's blessings. Don't worry about other people's giftings. Don't worry about the excellencies or the failures of the other people. Worry about Christ and serve him. Now, I I recognize that we're a church in the process of getting ready to build a building. And I've mentioned it previously. There are a few things as trying in a church's life as building a building. It's uh, statistically the fastest way to get rid of your pastor. It is. I mean, it is. It kills pastors faster than anything else. And I would suggest part of the reason is, is because we begin to compare our desires and our wants with other people's. And we need to stay in our lane. We need to put our head down. We need to delight in the forgiveness of God and serve Him wholeheartedly. I'm going to suggest that's what this body has done well for long before I got here. 15 years of serving God, captivated with His glory. May it be that we have 50, 100, 150 years in the future built together as the body of Christ, cleansed by his forgiving work, faithfully serving him, putting our heads down, and rejoicing in the calling that he has given us. May it be that when we are called to glory, we will hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant, faithful to your calling, the one that God gave you, specifically. Well done. Let's pray. Lord, it is delightful to have a shepherd as wonderful as the Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us and guards us and keeps us. Forgive us for being foolish sheep that intentionally eat evil things. Oh Lord, might we feast on Christ. Oh, Lord, might we understand your forgiving work. Oh, Lord, might we be faithful sheep. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.